Hello and welcome to Creative Shramble. My name is Cal Thompson and today I'm joined by Mark Sharman. So Mark has credits including Blue Planet 2, One Strange Rock, Earth From Space, Blue Planet Live. And so it's safe to say you're fairly well versed and an experienced underwater cinematographer and nature filmmaker. Oh, also you're a drone pilot as well. So um, has that summarised uh, your career up nicely there, Mark? Yeah, in a nutshell, that's me for the last couple of years, I'd say. Um, yeah, that's some of the projects I've been very lucky to be involved with. That's amazing. I mean, how how does someone become an underwater cinematographer? Like, did you start off as a lifeguard and then it just kind of spiral out of control from there? <laughs> um, not too far from the truth. I I actually was um, a competitive swimmer in my teen years and into my early twenties. So I was always a bit of a water boy, and that kind of progressed into scuba diving quite naturally I was always in the water really um, and at the same time that was going on I was kind of interested in getting involved in making my own videos and animations at college um, I then studied a degree in television production which I did at Bournemouth University um, and that really gave me the foundations of a media pr production degree and course and and making things on you know with teams of people um, but it was always the wildlife side of the industry that appealed most and particularly underwater that was my speciality but it, it's not one of these things where there's a job waiting for you to jump into out of university very much the opposite you've kind of got to create opportunities and give yourselves lots of a foundation of skills in this case tons of diving tons of camera work put it all together and then just be around and meet people and the kind of people that work in Bristol and then plonk yourself there and work your way for a few years and hopefully get a few breaks along the way. So, so is that how, that's how it works and you're brought in by production companies to offer your I guess, freelance cinematography services and it's about just being on their radar at all times? Yeah it's it's been a it's a funny career to break into it takes some people get really lucky and they have managed to quite quickly out of university or just not even university some people just you know did it all through their teenage years just heavily into photography and filmmaking and then you know the more time you spend behind the camera making things editing things and putting it out there the more chance you've got you know of someone noticing you um and it's very much working a career in this it's very much about being a social person and you know meeting as many people as possible because you really get the work from the people you know your your network of contacts that's really where the work comes from and you know I've, i'm working for people that i've i'm working for recently um that i might have met several years ago and it's kind of word of mouth you meet one and you work with someone and then they you do a good job for them hopefully and your name kind of hopefully travels farer and wider and uh, you start getting work from all sorts of places amazing i mean you must have witnessed some absolutely incredible things and been to some locations that i guess very very few people in the world ever get to go to like, what would you say what's it like like seeing large nature in action like have you ever seen polar bears feeding or anything like that i have i i worked on this um production that went out on itv called life at the extreme with davina mccall the presenter and we went to svalbard for one of the episodes i worked on all four of those episodes 
and my job was to do the wildlife camera work on that so it was the the long lens um filming and we did encounter polar bears in that instance um on the sea ice and we saw um one of the last things we filmed for the program um we were skidooing all day and not really having much joy and then just as the kind of lovely afternoon golden light was happening um we saw a mother with her two cubs and they were around a recent recently king um killed um seal on the ice um and they were kind of happy and playing and i was just you know spent a good sort of half an hour getting some lovely shots and luckily the the mother she wasn't too territorial she let us you know she was aware of us being there um but um it was an amazing experience and I mean, in terms of in the water stuff, then I've had some wonderful opportunities to to swim and uh, film things like humpback whales, sperm whales, um, orcas up in Norway, um, and yeah, it's it's an incredible feeling being in their environment. You know, you are invited in by them, really, or you know, they they either want you there and you're happy for, to be there, or they are in, not interested and they just kind of generally swim away from you. Um, but the aim is to try and be in the in the same place that they are. Um, they acknowledge you that your your presence, and hopefully they just get on with their behaviour and and ignore you. So allowing you to just film their behaviour naturally. So are they ever threatened by you? Some animals are more wary. I'd say wary is a word to use. But you part of our job really is to kind of be as calm and you know disturb them as little as possible really so when you're approaching a, a whale um i filmed humpback whales off the coast of columbia and the visibility was down to about four or five meters and in those scenarios trying to swim really slowly and gently up to um humpback mother with her calf she seemed to get quite startled because you came out of the kind of murkiness and then they would they wouldn't stick around they'd just kind of swim off in quite a hurry so it seemed like they were a bit startled for you to be there and but you know a few attempts later on a different animal then she was just um the viz was a little bit better maybe up to 10 meters and maybe she just could see more and she could see you coming from further off and uh, i was in a position to be able to spend a good few minutes just circling her she get let allow me to get right up close to her with her calf and kind of presented the calf to me and then she was quite happy for me to be in the water with her and then she just swam off at a nice gentle pace so you know it's a bit of a cliche to say wildlife have different personalities but they really do and depending on what mood they might be in or you know what the viz is like their surroundings then that kind of often determines uh, you know how successful those approaches are wow how, how does that work from like a, a technical and a safety point of view do you have like a, a, a safety boat near you sort of following you as you swim off or can you be hundreds of meters away at any given time doing your own thing like how does that work yeah we're generally really well supported we're often working with um, an expert in the field of that particular um, region so often I'm working with a, a dive master or an instructor um, who takes tourists out to these locations or they're a scientist and I generally um, so we're normally with a scientific research vessel or a or a boat that's dedicated to that kind of tourism and that we've got that boat for maybe you know two or three weeks 
and we pick their brains you know we really you, you know you have to be really open-minded you can't be an expert in all these different animals you really have to take on board the research that's been done by the people in the field that we work with it's a real team effort so i couldn't pretend you know i couldn't um I wouldn't be so bold as to kind of think that think that I knew everything about that animal before dropping in. I'd really do my homework, um, ask all the questions I could, and really get a good understanding of what is possible. And you basically just take um, their word, and and you generally, obviously, my experience. Then I've done you know animals more than once now on on a few occasions, um, and the the boat is there generally for cetacean filming. You are looking for an opportunity to get in which is safe and we're at a good distance and we're kind of tracking it alongside it and then we want to get in a place where they can probably drop me in front of the whale as it's swimming past or I, I need to kind of swim into position and that's how it often works for sperm whales certainly or humpbacks um, and I'll I'll definitely have a buddy in with me you know the experienced um, instructor or dive master they'll be with me and they'd be on my back and you know it's it's very much a team effort in that respect how much do you think of this is uh you know what you get is luck versus how much is actually planned you know because nature's so unpredictable i imagine you can only plan so much that's right um we basically tend to i mean before i arrive on a shoot all of the research has been done, you know, loads of phone calls backwards and forwards between the scientists in the field and the researcher or the assistant producer in the office. So my, I feel that my job is kind of um, almost the easiest job. All the hard work has been done already by finding the story, you know, um, creating a good relationship with the scientists where we're invited, a film crew is invited to that location. And generally, all, most of the luck is hopefully taken, uh, or the doubt for that luck is taken out of the equation because of the planning. Um, so we would go to, you know, the, the location at the time of year where it's known to happen. And we'll, you know, they'll allocate a three-week shoot, for example, around that time that it's most commonly known to happen, that behaviour. Um, and and that's how it works. I kind of get the lucky job where all of that hard work's done and kind of opens up the door for me to then do what I do and use my expertise to capture that behaviour that's been known and has been predicted. And of course, it can it can go wrong. You know, we've I've been on shoots where we've gone all the way to New Zealand and then got on a fishing boat for 300 kilometres off the coast towards Australia, um, trying to film some striped marlin hunting um, bait balls. And the, the the captain said, oh, this is pretty much guaranteed. I've seen it every year. And, um, you know, for the 12 days we were out there, we, we didn't see a single predatory bit of behaviour. And we went all that way and uh, came back with not, the sequence that we're after that must be so disheartening and there's nothing it's nobody's fault really is it no i mean the, the the big blue chip productions do have contingency in their budget for failed shoots they have to allocate and they'll often actually have more shoots for their program than they need because things will not work out how they want it and they generally are in a position they've luckily got the budget to be able to allocate the funds necessary um, to either put a really strong shoot and they'll have multiple seasons. So, you know, you, you might go back to a 
bit of behavior for three two or three seasons running just to try and build that sequence and year on year you just get a little bit more for the for that sequence um so you know once you're kind of honed in on that behavior and that location and what you're looking for then it's just a case of really trying to build and get the different shots that you need to tell that story i mean they do say that blue planet 2 took over four years to make is that quite typical for a nature program of that scale absolutely yeah from the from the the commission of it, the green light, I'd say it's probably a four year process from all the, there's usually a, at least six months of pre-production pre where, you know, the team is getting crewed up, you've got researchers coming on board, assistant producers, producers, everyone then does a really good job of um, reaching out to the scientists and using new technology new technology that's now around to find the most interesting new stories that can be told or told in a different way um, so they really put the time in to kind of do their homework and build you know a um, a plan for each episode um, and then obviously the, the shoots probably spend at least two two and a half years of going out and that's why you get maybe more than one season more than one stab at trying to get the same behavior and then it'll often be a good you know, six months or more in the post-production process, possibly up to a year, cutting all these kind of six or eight programs together and doing all the sound for them. So it's a, it's a huge undertaking. And um, I think hopefully everyone realises and appreciates how much work goes into them and it's, and it's worth it for that amazing hour of television. I mean, I definitely do appreciate it. I mean, one of the favourite parts for me is actually watching the behind-the-scenes sections at the end to see how many crew are involved and the kit that they use because you know, being a filmmaker I'm a massive film nerd as well and what the, what are the latest toys that the, you guys get to play with. Um, you know, do you, is your role mainly technical in terms of rigging the kit and then you know you said you're not so much involved in constructing the stories but I guess you've got to be an expert in the underwater housing that you use, the cameras, the lenses and being ready to go at any one moment. You can't just be sitting around and then go right the, the sperm whale's here and you're faffing around putting your mask on like what's that kind of like right the role is a multifaceted one you definitely wear a few hats so on one hand it's a very technical role you're working often with a, a camera assistant and between the two of you you know actually before that's even happened you know when when a producer phones you up and says we've got this shoot we'd like to shoot this behavior um, you then have to work with the producer to try and figure out what kit is going to be used, what lenses, what camera, what lights, what grip equipment, all that kind of thought goes into what you want to prepare and take out with you. Um, so there's lots of really good chats to have about that and just to make sure that you're going on location with all the right kit and it's not something that you kind of do on location that's already been done by the time you get there so you have to make lots of kind of creative decisions up front and that might sometimes involve building some new kit if you've got the time and the budget to do so um so yeah we could be talking underwater sliders um some quad pods if you're doing some macro stuff you need really stabilized shots so the idea is to try and bring as much cinematic quality into those underwater productions as possible um, within budget restraints obviously and then when you're on location it's a case of managing that kit 
um, making sure everything's ready. So when those moments come, you are absolutely ready. Yeah, you can't be faffing around with your stuff. You've just got to be really slick and ready and that camera needs to get in the water with you if you've only got a few minutes for that before that behavior is passed. Um, there's another hat you also wear, you know, a bit of an editorial hat. So you, we are, you know, storytellers as well. We're interpreting the story that the producer wants. Often the producer isn't in the field with us. I might be working with a researcher or an assistant producer and between us, we're kind of constantly talking um about what shots we need to get um there's often a storyboard that comes out with you to kind of follow the rough guide of what you might hope to achieve um but you know if there's a, a narrative arc you know you just want to make sure that you're getting those shots and and you can be creative in the moment then you can kind of get shots that you might not have thought about beforehand um so it's a really interesting collaborative process where there's lots of pre-planning and hopefully get as much kit that you need on location as possible. But also in the moment, you're really firing all cylinders, you know, getting your creative juices going and, and trying to get those those little moments um, when they present themselves. Do you, do you own a lot of your own diving and sort of underwater housing gear? Do you feel like that helps bring the work in? And that's maybe as a necessity, or can you enter the industry without any kit? You can definitely enter the industry without owning kit. I did. Um, it does. It definitely does help. The sooner you can afford to get your kit and start using it and start becoming familiar with the tools, then that's definitely going to be an advantage. Um, I, in the past, it, you know, when when the older cameramen shot on film, then it was a necessity. That was when it was very much expected for the cameraman to own all of their film kit and the you know the tripod the the camera body the lenses but that really has changed in the you know in since the 2000s really when hd cameras start, started coming in um it, it's really brought the price down quite considerably especially with dslrs doing video now um, or for the last 10 years really then access to this kit has been a lot easy and I think the younger camera people coming in are getting their hands on equipment in their teenage years that I kind of certainly didn't um, and it's great and there's obviously lots of platforms out there to kind of showcase your work which is really good and again that was really before my time so I'd say now I, I have invested in kit over the last few years and I think that's become an important part of what I do and it is nice to have familiarity with your kit that you're using and it just often makes the production's job a lot easier if you can just come with what you know um, and also bring a lot of the kit to the table I've basically got a Gates Pro Explore underwater housing which houses red um, um, red cameras basically so like a red Gemini red helium DSMC2 cameras um, I've got a, a whole range of Canon lenses EF lenses um, Fujinon MK lenses. Um, I did own a couple of FS Sony FS7 cameras and recently sold them. Um, so I'm always looking to kind of see what what tools um, I think are really good for the job, and you know that that are relatively affordable that could you know I could bring on to the jobs that I do. This is a really nerdy question, but you mentioned obviously the Gates housing that, that takes the Gemini and the Monstro. Why is it that the BBC Planet Earth features? Are all seem to be covered on red, whereas more narrative uh, and commercial content is covered on Ari. What are your thoughts on that? It's I'm not hundred percent sure when when um, 
when the red, ca I mean, Blue Planet Two was one of the first productions, blue chip productions, productions to really um, fully use the the red epic dragons. I think that was the main camera of choice. Um, I think they they when when it was the red one, I think there were some doubts. They were very noisy cameras, very heavy cameras. Um, I think the the image quality has always been staggering coming out of the red. Um, you know, having internal raw recording has been fantastic for post-production, getting the most out of those images and the dynamic range is, is unbelievable. Um, and I don't know why, I mean, I've it's certainly one, probably my favourite camera to use. The, we use the Red Gemini an awful lot because it's dual um, ISO, so it's really helpful to have better low-light sensitive um, sensors in cameras these days, and, and the Gemini is a really good example of that. Um, and it just gives a fantastic cinematic look to, to you know, going back to Blue Planet, there was a lot of very video-y looking images, and I mean, amazing behaviour, but the difference between Blue Planet and Blue Planet 2, which was just a, a 16 years gap of production, I think, was absolutely staggering. So much camera technology changed in that period of time. We went from pretty much standard definition, which a lot of the underwater stuff was, um, all the way through to 4K, and now we're film pretty much filming on 8K and 5K cameras with massive dynamic ranges, just like you know what the film cameras were once like. Um, so you know, keeping up with the technology is definitely a part of the job as well. Yeah, what would you say some of the toughest obstacles you've come up against when shooting underwater? I think time is always your biggest um, restraint, really. You know time and basically you've got such a small window you know three weeks might sound like an awful lot of time but if that whole sequences can be based on a flurry of about a 20 minute window of activity you know if you're filming like a big bait ball behavior for example you know you could spend three weeks in the field and on the very last day that you're going out it's like you're almost giving up you think what a massive waste of money this has been this is going to be a big hole in the budget um, but luckily, often there's some amazing luck that happens and it doesn't happen every time. You do get failed shoots and you have to go back to the drawing board and they decide whether they, it's worth their while going back again or they'll just have to find something else to film. Um, but it can happen where everything you want all happens within sort of a 20 minute period and you know 80% of the sequence is kind of got in that one big session and then everything else the three weeks before where you're thinking you're just getting little snippets and bits and pieces that all kind of adds into the sequence as well. Mm. What would you say is your most memorable sequence that you've been fortunate enough to cover? One of the most memorable things I've done is um, filming sperm whales off of Dominica in the Caribbean and it was for a project that's coming out on Animal Planet soon, probably next year. Um, and we were there. I was there for the whole month, actually, on two different productions. I was there firstly with Blue Planet Live, working with a scientist and getting lots of lovely shots of him doing his research with the whales in the water. And then I stayed out there to do this other project um, for for this Animal Planet project. And we had one amazing moment where we had these this the kind of holy grail of sperm whale behavior and encounters is when they when they fall asleep at the surface and they all go into a vertical position all is one um family pod and being able to get in the water and film 
around these kind of tombstoning um, sperm whales who are hanging in about, you know, sort of five, ten metres under the surface for a good hour or so. It was an amazing thing to witness it it has been filmed in the past it was covered in blue planet 2 i wasn't involved in the filming of that but um i've seen that behavior now and it is unbelievable and you're trying to weave in and out of them without disturbing them and hoping you know to get all the shots um and it's just one of the most amazing spectacles in the natural world and to sort of be right in the middle of it was just incredible do you still get excited when your shots or your sequences actually make it to broadcast and go out into these shows do you actually watch the shows yourselves as a fan and as a, as a filmmaker and how, how do you feel when you, a sequence has come out how you imagined it or or maybe better because you said you're involved in the edit in terms of it's in your head what you're shooting but i can't imagine you're actually involved in the edit post-production side is that right that's right i i often actually watch these um these programs go out and not have a clue as the same as the audience as to what to expect because my job really is just to gather the raw material i kind of see myself as a maybe as a miner with a pickaxe trying to dig out you know these gems basically and you kind of just all you can do is just keep on digging and trying to provide as much raw material as possible i then hand over this big truckload of dirt as well as gold and gems in there but it's not for me to kind of piece that all together and make some you know work of art that's down to the editor um and i might pop into the edit to see how it's going and to get some feedback and to kind of see how it's being cut together um but it's generally down to the production uh, the producer and the editor to kind of finally craft what i've given them um and it's really satisfying and i do get excited about watching that come out and it, it kind of takes me right back again and yeah, I'm I'm really pleased. I'm I'm always critical, thinking, oh, that that shot was maybe a little bit wobbly, but maybe that's I'm the only person in the world that's probably noticing those kind of little details. Always looking for ways to improve things. Um, but yeah, it's you know to be able to watch something that that you know maybe millions of people are watching and enjoying at the same time is a real. It's kind of what we do it for, really. And then not only that is then you experience all the the you know the kind of um the chat that goes on about it all the social media if there's a big conservation kind of um conversation that can kind of be developed from that then that's really exciting to know you've you've done something that kind of has helped people's understanding or perception of the natural world and maybe helped them to to want to help and protect it as well yeah, I mean, there's a massive thing with Planet Earth 2 and, you know, alongside David Attenborough shouting about plastic waste and the world actually listened. It was one of the, it was absolutely huge when it came out um, a couple of years ago. Do you feel like you have an obligation to be more sort of environmentally conscious with the job that you do? Definitely. Um, yeah, I'd say Blue Planet 2 was was one of the first... I mean, they, they certainly touched upon it in things like Frozen Planet and they every blue chip natural history series that have come out over the last few years, I think, has done more and more to really engage with that environmental side of it. Um, and it's funny because I when I was watching these programs as a, as a teen and in my early 20s, I, I, when I went to university, um, it was an academic degree as well as a, a, a hands-on kind of production degree. And we were asked to write a dissertation about what interested us about the industry. And I chose the subject of why 
are environmental issues not covered by BBC Blue Chip documentaries. And th the main case study was, was the original Blue Planet series. And, and they really did paint a picture back then of just this pristine, untouched world where people just watched on a Sunday night for an hour's worth of pure escapism. They didn't have to worry about any kind of political views or, you know, th bad news stories or, or whatever. And, and I always thought they're kind of missing a trick. You know, I kind of understood that their argument was that, you know, it, ratings are going to fall. People don't want to be sort of had a finger wagged at them and but you know this massive platform millions you know more than 10 million people watched each episode and it was painting this picture of this pristine ocean and that nothing was in trouble and it really barely talked about any human influences whatsoever so then fast forward you know 15 20 years and you couldn't get more polarized you know that those are issues that i kind of had have completely been addressed not through anything that I've done, I mean, I you know that that was never a published work or anything like that. It's just the momentum over the last twenty years of people's raised awareness um, and want to kind of do something has really spearheaded, and it's been put slap bang in the middle of these programs, and it's it's not skirted around anymore. And the good thing is that surprise, surprise, the audience completely embraced it. It wasn't they thought originally twenty years ago that that would put them off. And that they didn't want to watch or be told, but it's quite the opposite. People seemingly want to know what's really going on in, in the natural world and what they can do to help it. And things like raising awareness of plastic. And I mean, being wildlife filmmakers in the field for the last 15 years or so, we've seen firsthand all the beaches that are just covered in plastic. And, you know, you're driving along on the boat and there's plastic in the water everywhere. And generally, you try and turn your camera away from that. You, 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 know, you do want to show it in its pristine, perfect best, but it's kind of telling a lie, really. You're not really telling the truth. And if, if the audience just think that the world is perfect, then they, they weren't to know. And thank, thankfully, the, the pendulum has swung the other way and, you know, producers are very much, you know, putting what's really going on out there and and the audience is massively going with it and they're doing something about it and changing their habits and absolutely i feel like um i i am doing as much as i can you know getting rid of your plastic toothbrush and having a bamboo one and you know i've just had a newborn child and instead of having disposable nappies we're using reusable ones and little things like that that we're really keen to kind of practice what we preach really and i think it's really important to do what we can um, with the resources that we've got to try and reduce our impact as much as possible. Um, you mentioned about um, sometimes you can be on a shoot for three weeks and maybe only get a 20 minute window to actually get what you need. I'm kind of getting into the dirty laundry a little bit here, but do you have a rough idea of what your shooting ratio is when you're out there? And by that I mean how much do you think you shoot versus how much is actually usable? Or do you use picture cast to sort of be a bit more cautious with what you're actually covering? Yeah, we're, we're very fortunate that we now live in a world where digital media means you can pretty much record a lot of things that you may not have done um, when you were filming on, on film. You know, there's, there's stories where a lot of the original Blue Planet series was shot on film and you only have four minute rolls at a time. So you have got to be incredibly... Um, 
cautious as to when you choose to hit record in those times and that probably was a very good discipline because that would bring, bring through and you don't really want to be hosing down and just giving the editor you know just a million hours worth of footage to go through you do want to be quite considerate um, but we do definitely have more of a luxury these days where you know if something is half happening you can press that trigger and I'd say a rough shooting ratio of about 10 to 1 so you shoot 10 hours for maybe oh, say say shoot 10 minutes of footage and you might one of those minutes might be usable is possibly quite accurate I'd say um, I've done shoots where you know the brief was wide open I, I went to Oman for a five-week shoot and we pretty much had to make come back with four hours worth of underwater footage so almost every dive that I did I was looking around there was a huge um, production document of things that we could film that would make you know make it into the edit um, so some shoots that I've been involved in the, the, the net is so wide that you know every dive you go in you see some squid doing some interesting behavior I'd, I'd spend 20-30 minutes filming that and getting a nice sequence and then the second half of the dive I, I might see a snake eel and I get an interesting bit encounter with that so it depends what you're working on if you're generally doing a blue chip sequence where you know you're looking for one key bit of behavior there is a lot of waiting you know you're not going to be hitting record too many times just because you know it takes so long for that specific thing to actually happen when you're sort of on the boats or you know in these remote islands what how do you keep yourself busy when you are waiting for that moment or do you always have to be ready to go the time really just whizzes by because you are in a constant state of readiness um, it's not as if there's idle time there's always kind of wildlife to be watching for you know if you're filming whales for example um, you're always looking for for blowholes for the, you know that when they come to the surface that's the first indication that they're up then it's a bit of a you know uh, a dash to kind of get into their vicinity um, to get alongside them um, so you know there's not too much twiddling your thumbs it's very it's very much an active kind of process um, waiting for especially on a boat I'd say if you're in a hide I don't do a lot of hide work really that's not really my my thing kind of long lens hide work I've done a little bit of it but I've definitely gone down the underwater and kind of presenter led um, shoots really um, but that you know you, you see the making of and they're obviously in a hide for like 16 hours a day and again everyone's really in a constant state of readiness because that little bird or whatever there is you're trying to film if that makes an appearance and you've kind of nodded off, then uh, you're going to kick yourself for an awful long time. Yeah, you don't, they're, not, they're not sat in there like playing cards or anything like that and just keeping one eye no, on the window. Quite. No, it's, I mean, sometimes, to be honest, if if you are um, on that New Zealand shoot, sometimes the weather prevents you from doing anything. Um, so, you know, we've been stuck on land for a week longer than the, we should have done of a storm and you just can't go out to see it, it's dangerous so there are sometimes times where you know you just can't do anything and then all you can do just is constantly check you know on the camera just make sure that you've got everything with you but generally there's not much to do in those times but I think when you're in the moment and when you're in the location on the boat then there's always something to be doing do you use much lighting you know I'm not sure you probably know the exact answer but what, how far does light penetrate the surface of water? So how deep can you go before you need to bring lighting rigs with you? And is that something you sort of carry with your, um, with your most shoots? Yeah, so it depends what you're filming, um, whether you take lighting or not. 
if you're in the in the very shallows um then you know in the first five meters of water i'd say you're probably that often doesn't need light uh, it depends though if you're doing some macro stuff i think that invariably is always going to require some a light source um you generally want to stop down the lens quite a lot so you get more depth of field so it's not mega shallow and with that comes you probably want to bring in a light source um and my philosophy is to try and make it look as natural as possible and recreate what the sun is doing so often we'll have one quite powerful light kind of vertically above or maybe just ever so slightly backlit or ever so slightly frontlit depending on on what you want to go for um that kind of just enhances the natural light that's already there and you can either have an assistant who's kind of hovering a couple of meters above you doing that job or if you're in a static location filming something on the seabed then then you'd often have a stand with a light pointing down and generally you want it to make it so it's not kind of front lit with two lights like a maybe a some maybe classic underwater photography you try to you're trying to kind of create a natural look for it so it doesn't kind of look too weird when the viewer's watching it. it doesn't look like a lit environment so that's quite a tricky part of the job trying to get those balance those things out um and even when you're deeper again you know you do want to be kind of recreating what natural light may be there as it appears on camera so you know the the, the light then might go about five meters above where you are and just have the most powerful light um hitting the subject if you're you know trying to film an octopus for example that's kind of hunting out in the open at 25 meters say then you definitely want to be lighting that and again trying to trying to do what you can to make it look as natural as possible without disturbing the animal too much i guess is a big consideration you can't put a big spotlight in their face without them darting off yeah i mean that's a huge part of the job for wildlife filmmaking and you're doing all sorts that you can to try and you know minimize your presence and that's sometimes by using rebreathers that don't produce bubbles and, and are much quieter. And so you can kind of blend into the environment. You can even wear sort of camouflaged, um, you know, things on you. So you can kind of blend in a little bit more visually. Um, and you're right. You don't you don't want to, you know, in inevitably you generally do have to bring in some sort of light a lot of the time if you're filming something relatively small. Um, if you're filming big things like a, a whale, that that you know you shouldn't ever need to light that obviously that's going to be mostly at the surface and there's going to be a lot of light there so the bigger the subject the less need there is for light um, but the smaller the subject absolutely that that brings in the need to light almost to 100 percent really um, but yeah you've got to be really you've got to edge closer to it you know you are some wildlife takes it and it just carries on like you've got a camera right there um, and you've got lights above it and I filmed a seahorse and that seahorses are traditionally really difficult to film and they generally just turn your their back on you and just swim away from the whole time but I was lucky to find one that was very obliging and just sat on its little perch and I was able to put a couple of lights in and have this big quad pod and get some lovely close-up macro detail shots of its eyes and its in its snout and things like that and it all depends really and I think what I feel that I can bring to the to the table is that I don't know I can be very calm in location you just got to get into the mindset of that animal and do what you can to kind of just not be there whilst being there and doing everything you need to be if that makes any sense. What kind of control do you have over the kit when you're in the water like can you stop down or refocus or swing in NDs easily or do you often rig it 
above the surface, then get in and then sort of it's ready to go and it's a lot of start-stop action. Um, you generally have all of the controls that you'd want to your fingertips um, in an underwater housing. So as I said, I've got the Gates Pro Explore housing and that has basically, yeah, the focus wheel, the the um, the zoom wheel. It's got usually use electronic lenses so you can use um, a paddle that kind of stops up and stops down. Then you've got, you know, a menu system that you can basically access anything. Um, so, yeah, you don't generally lose out... Um, the ability to adjust the camera it, you've pretty much got the same control over it underwater as you do topside um just trying to think if there's any exception to that uh, the only thing i can think of is when i was shooting on these i, I shot uh, some underwater sequences um so i shot, shot some underwater scenes for this upcoming disney feature film um called artemis fowl that i think is going to be coming out next year um, and there's basically a surf scene in that and um, we were using basically Panavision anamorphic lenses and within the dome then we had to basically put ND filters over the front end of those of those lenses basically and we didn't have the ability then to kind of I kind of had to judge how light it was going to be because I, I wanted to get the same stop as the DOP which is like five six in that instance but but no most of the time when you're filming wildlife yeah you've got all the controls you'd ever want to get what you need to get. What's the greatest depth you've ever actually dived to? Just a little curious question. I'm qualified to 50 meters on my rebreather so that's the deepest I've gone to you can obviously go much deeper there's technical divers that can go like 100 plus meters um i haven't ventured there yet i've kind of tempted to do a little bit more technical diving depth maybe to like 60 65 meters um but yeah currently 50 and um it's quite an interesting world down there i've done that in egypt um which crystal clear waters and um there's some really interesting looking wrecks around that region and sort of big shoals of fish that maybe a little bit out of reach from uh, some of the fishermen. It sounds painful. I did tw 12 metres, which is the most you can do without a paddy certification. And my head felt like it was going to explode. Because I, was, I think <laughs> I, I went down a bit too quick and it took me a while to acclimatise. But once I did, you know, it was great, obviously, and you saw some amazing things. But I can't imagine how long it must take to acclimatise down at 50 metres. No, to be honest, it's just a case of equalising. So you must have felt pain in your head or your sinuses, I guess. And that's just, you know, an experienced diver will just know how to how to equalise fairly quickly. And actually going down deeper doesn't make that any harder. It's just it's just a constant, you know, every sort of metre or two, you're generally doing a little bit more equalising, like pinching your nose and sort of pressing the pressure out as you might do on an aircraft. Um so actually, no, you can get down to that depth relatively quickly. You can kind of drop like a stone. Um, coming up, you want to do that very slowly, but going down, you can actually go down as quickly as you can. Does that get easier the more experienced you are in terms of being able to equalise the pressure? Yeah, definitely. I think when you're a novice diver, you know, that's you're quite spluttery and you don't really know what you're doing and your neutral buoyancy is all over the place. And, and you know, you might be feeling weird pressure in your head that you don't know how to clear properly. But definitely, when you're an experienced diver, that kind of all comes second nature. And I have actually learned how to equalise without having to take my hands off the, the handles of the camera. Um, so I can do it just by sort of wiggling your jaw around. And so as you're going deeper, because often you're filming things and the depth is changing ever so slightly, you know, they're coming slightly up or slightly down. 
and you don't want to be sort of taking a hand off the of the camera because that would just go a bit wobbly and it would kind of ruin your shot really so you've, you've got to be able to do that equalizing with your hands still on the camera um, but really the, I mean just going back to the basics the fundamental rules of anyone who wants to get into underwater filming you've got, you've got to be an absolute master scuba diver um, not a qualification just that you need to have got a lot of dives under your belt um, and mastered the skill of neutral buoyancy and that needs to become second nature like you're not even thinking about it it's a complete automatic process where you are completely weightless underwater and you can move up or down in the body of water um, and follow the wildlife without even thinking about it as well as you know doing some really light finning to kind of move steadily and not jog the camera um, so that all comes with experience and time and and you you know you can't really pick up a camera until you've kind of uh, or expect to get anything good with a camera at least until you've really put the hours in um you know getting getting to as as good as you can with with those skills and it's a lifelong process that that skill development never really stops really there's always something to 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 learn and keep your hand in with one of my favorite parts of watching these nature shows is the behind the scenes afterwards i know that you've now personally featured in a bunch of these behind the scenes sequences are you now becoming a big fan of being a presenter? Um, how do you feel about the, the camera being pointed your way rather than being behind the camera? I know most cameramen are happy to be behind the scenes and not have a camera pointed in their face. Now you've got to do both. How has that affected your role? Uh, I certainly am not going to be going down the lines of becoming a presenter anytime soon. Um, but certainly we're getting more and more um, requested to kind of tell our stories behind the scenes. and. As you said, you know, the behind the scenes element is quite often what people really like to see how it's all done. And I've um, some of my stuff on Blue Planet Live was featured um, in that capacity. And I've got there's a new series coming up in Netflix, a wildlife series that um, I filmed some orcas with that will be featured in that capacity as well. And yeah, it is different. Um, you know, we're all quite anonymous generally behind the camera. You don't generally get to meet who these camera people are. Um, and it's it's quite an interesting experience to be able to um, explain what you've just done. You know, you're in the moment, you've literally just got out of the water and filmed something really quite incredible, and you've got to try and be succinct and uh, put that into words. And it's definitely a different skill set, but hopefully, I think it just comes fairly naturally. You know, generally, you've just done something that you've always wanted to do, and uh, it's just a case of then putting that into words somehow. Um, but yeah, it's really good to see that that kind of behind the scenes stuff is uh, uh well i'm glad they they feature it really it's um i i love watching that bit as well i'm, I'm, I'm always learning new stuff as well from the other guys that that are featured in that kind of stuff so i think it's good on many levels is there anything else you can think of that you you'd like to share in terms of how other people can get involved in not necessarily just underwater cinematography but wildlife filmmaking in general what would you say to somebody sort of young and up and coming and how they could build on their skill set what would they go about doing i think time in the field like doing the job and trying to get as much time actually hands-on with the camera and just trying to spend time in the field filming you know the wildlife subjects or even photographing them i think that's that's the, the nitty-gritty is the more time you can spend behind the camera uh, early in life as possible the more chance of success you will it's and it's, you know, that will therefore, you know, you will have an innate passion and interest in the subject if you are doing that from as young as possible. Um, 
and you know luckily like i said earlier the the prices of cameras have dropped really quite a lot and it is possible even on your mobile phone it's possible to kind of probably film something interesting um and the tools are there at everyone's fingertips really um obviously you know some of it's still way out of most people's affordability in terms of lenses and tripods and and cameras but it doesn't need to be shot on the fanciest equipment at all um i'd say it's going to be a long 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 ride and prepare be prepared for that it's going to take longer than you ever think you know it's not an industry that's just going to completely welcome you with open arms it's got it's a very you know interesting job that a lot of people would like to do therefore the the number of people trying to get into it is really quite great and i think it's more survival of the the most committed more than anything you know there's there's tons of setbacks and rejections and people not taking you seriously or you know there's just so much to learn and you've just got to keep putting yourself out there and plugging away and doing what you can to get yourself in a good position and hopefully you'll think that you know you'll you'll get noticed and you know just building up that that initial contact base go to the a lot of the industry meetings and wild screen festival that happens every two years in bristol is a very good thing to start going to a meeting people and just be confident i think you know people like people who really love what they do you know people you'll get really good response if you bound up to someone really excited and passionate and showing you know the work you've done and you know that may not open an opportunity immediately but you might you know you might be remembered and you know sort of being remembered for the good things is is a very good thing do you do much with social media yourself or is a lot of the work that you've got all the, the jobs that you've got been through word of mouth and sort of historic connections or is that changing now most of my work does come from my established contact base and people I've worked with before or people have heard of me that that's generally the, still the route um, I, I am active um, or I'm kind of active on Instagram and I've got a Facebook presence um, I don't I'm not on there all the time um, it doesn't really get me that much work to be honest but that that could be changing I'd say over the next five or ten years as more and more you know younger people come through and come on and become established in the industry they will have you know grown up with social media being a, a, a big presence and actually you know when these people with Instagram and Facebook around them now become producers that's completely the norm and there's a there's a possible good chance that someone who's you know does some really good work and publishes it online and they're very young and inexperienced might get the breaks that would otherwise take you sort of 10 15 years 20 years to get maybe so it could well open up opportunities for younger people to get opportunities sooner but i think you know there's still the way is to get experience the hard long way and the most rewarding way i think is just to spend time and uh, just just know that you you're in for a good kind of quite a few years ahead trying to get somewhere with this that was amazing mark thank you very much for for your time and giving such amazing insight into the world of underwater cinematography i mean that was amazing you're welcome no really good to chat and um i hope if anyone's listening to this then i hope there's some interesting information in there and um yeah it was a pleasure thank you <laughs>